Good morning. You can open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 78. Psalm 78. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. And for the past couple of weeks, Pastor Blake has led us through a two-week study through the, the topics of baptism and membership. And we've been thinking on if there is a relationship between baptism and membership. First, we saw that, that most covenants in the scriptures have with them a sign, a sign act that, that signifies the covenant and, and membership within that covenant. And, and for the new covenant, we saw that that sign is baptism. Which the argument is then that, it says that baptism is necessary for, for entrance into the new covenant community, into that community. Then we saw that, that if baptism is the, the sign of the covenant, and if it's tied to visible entrance into the covenant community, then there's an organic relationship or, or a natural relationship between the sign of baptism and membership into the New Covenant community, which is the church, the, the local church. And one of the big areas of, uh, of the practical nature that the elders have been thinking through regarding all of this, and, and Blake touched on this last week, is, is how does this understanding of baptism and membership affect children in our congregation? And one conclusion that we came to is that, that children who display a credible profession of faith and, and undergo the sign of baptism, they will become members in the local church, specifically our, our local church here. But one question arose in my mind as we've thought through all of this, and maybe some of you have had similar thoughts, similar questions. And that's the question is, what does all of this mean? Everything we've talked about the past couple of weeks, what does it mean for the unbaptized children in our midst? And so I think, I'm thinking specifically here of children of members, children of believers who, who come to our church, but this also applies to just children generally. What does this understanding of baptism and membership mean for our unbaptized children? What is our our relationship to them? What is our responsibility to them? And this is, I would argue, this is a massively important question for the church to think about and to answer. Because you'll sometimes, you'll hear the charge from, from some paedo-baptists, so not all, but some, that, that those like us who, who do not baptize infants and bring them into the covenant community formally, that we're, we're neglecting something. We're depriving our children in some way by not bringing them into the covenant community through baptism. And so another aspect of this message, of this sermon, is to think about that charge against us made by some. Do we hurt? Are we hurting our children? Are we depriving our children in any way by not bringing them into the formal covenant community through baptism? I think you might know my answer to this, but I, I, I have an emphatic no. We are not hurting our children, not at all. But I do think it's a very important question for us to, to wrestle with, to, to think through, 
and that we need to think rightly about so we don't unintentionally neglect our role, our duty as, as parents and our duty as the church to raise up children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. I think if you, if you look around at, at the ministries of our church, this is an obvious conviction of our body. We have a Sunday school classes devoted to, to training up the next generation in God's ways. We have a youth ministry that, that is likewise devoted to equipping young people to, to think with the, with the scriptures in mind, to, to teach them the, the scriptures, to, to give them a, a biblical worldview. And this is really important. Baptism is not a requirement for kids to participate in these ministries. Nor should it ever be. These ministries are for all children. And so I want you to hear me loud and clear as we start this morning. We believe in the training up the next generation in the Word of God. We believe in in teaching God's Word to our children. And we believe that not simply because it's a good thing that we should do, or one of many good options we could choose to do with our kids when, when we're in church, since we're here anyways. No, we believe that. We believe that the training of our children is important because we see it as the clear pattern in the Bible. So we take up the responsibility to train up our children because we submit to the Scriptures most fundamentally. And one place to see this, the, this command, this pattern of passing on the faith to future generations is in Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. And this is going to be our text of study this morning. I'll read the text aloud. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 78, starting in verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to, tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not Faithful to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as you can see, if you're you're looking down there at at the text, Psalm 78 is a very long psalm. It's a a historical psalm as the main body of the text recounts events from from Israel's past that, that show how God has preserved his people. 
even as they displayed their, their hard hardness towards Yahweh. But again, I want to focus our attention on the first eight verses, which, which function, I think, to, to introduce the psalm. And these eight verses are pretty neatly broken down into two sections. Verses 1 through 4, which is Asaph, the author of the psalm, declaring his intention and really the, the reason for writing the psalm. That is that the Israelites, the people of God, would report and explain the meaning of the history of, of God working for the good and for the, the salvation of his people. And then verses 5 through 8, which tells more of explicit commands and, and expectations to pass on this teaching of God's working and in God's ways to pass on that teaching to future generations. So verse 1 through 4 can be summed up as, as Asaph's purpose for teaching. And verses 5 through 8 as God's people handing down this teaching to future generations. And those are going to be our, our two main points this morning. Asaph's purpose for teaching first, and then second, the purpose of God's people handing down the scriptures to future generations. And so let's first think about Asaph's teaching and, and call. Verses 1 through 4, again, they, they set up the, the rest of the psalm, and they give an explanation of why Asaph is, recounts the things that he is recounting, why he's recounting the particular history that he does in the body of the psalm, which is verses 9 through 72. So really we get the purpose statement for for the entire psalm here. Verses 1 and 2, Asaph writes, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. So I think we can, we can think of Asaph here as, as functioning as a prophet to Israel. Where, where he is uh, declaring God's word, proclaiming the teaching of the Lord to the Lord's people. And in verse 2, we see that this teaching will be in, in parable. And this interesting phrase, dark sayings from of old. I'd argue that both of these words, parables and dark sayings, are, are referring to similar, if not the, the same content. Dark sayings isn't my, my favorite translation because it carries with it the connotations of, of not being able to know it, as in things are not known in the dark. But verse 3 makes clear this teaching was known by the people, and they had heard it from their fathers. So dark sayings can't be things that, that are mysterious in the sense that people don't know them. The better word here may be hidden things. Mysteries. I think the idea is Asaph is, is writing, is he's going to teach the, the people through parable, through, through the mysteries of old, in the sense that as the rest of the psalm shows us, he's going to explain the mystery of God's faithfulness to his people, how he's working in history to preserve his people, even despite the, the, the people's constant and persistent disobedience towards God. 
Asaph's going to teach how God is, is faithful to his people, even as his people are unfaithful to him. That, that is the, the hidden things, the mystery that he's explaining. And I think this is, interpretation is bolstered if we look over in our New Testaments to, to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 34 through 35. Matthew 13 is where Jesus is, is teaching in parables, and he explains to his disciples why he's doing that, why he's teaching in parables. Jesus says that the, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have not been given to those who do not have faith in him, who do not trust him. And in verse 34 and 35, Matthew writes this, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That, that, that is a quote of, of our text this morning in, in Psalm 78 too. And what we see in Matthew is Jesus fulfilled this verse in his ministry, in his teaching in his teaching through parables. The point for us is just to say that, that Jesus, just as Jesus fully reveals God and fully reveals God's plan of salvation for his people through the teaching of, of his kingdom of God by, by parable in the New Testament, in the Gospel accounts, we could think of Asaph in, in seed form teaching about God's great plan of salvation for his people through parable, through the explaining of the mysteries of God, through the explaining of the hidden things of God. Which again, this is exactly what we see occur in the rest of the psalm. God's salvation for his people. And again, verse 3, we see that the, the Israelites know these teachings, or, or should know these teachings, because they've, they've heard them. They, they've known them. And this begins, I think, the, the biggest theme that we see in the rest of our verses, verses 1 through 8 in the text, which is the passing down of God's plan, the passing down of God's plan of salvation to the coming generations, to future generations. This picks up on, on the tradition, tradition within the people of God throughout all ages of passing down truth. It said passing down the truth of the scriptures to their children, to the next generation. Passing down to their children the wonderful works of God towards his people. This is the testimony that we even see in the New Testament, right? With which what Art just read for us in 2 Timothy 3. This is Timothy's testimony. He was taught the scriptures. He knew them from when? From childhood. Verse 4 makes this even more explicit. We will not hide them, that is, the, the, these teachings about God, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders He has done. So here I think we get some clarity on the content that is being taught to the children of God's people. We are not to hide to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord, his, his might, all the wonders that he's done throughout the history of his people. Which again, this is what Asaph's recounting then in the rest of the psalm. 
These are God's work and, and miraculous wonders He has performed in saving His people. So think of the, the miraculous Passover and the splitting of the Red Sea, where God delivered His people from Egyptian slavery. Think of God leading His people through the wilderness by, by cloud in the daytime and fire at night. Think of the splitting the rock to give His people water, to provide for the needs of His people. Right? There's, there's countless story after story after story of God's saving work to, to save and preserve His people. And that is what they recounted. This is what they passed down from generation to generation. Fathers would pass these stories down to their children. And they would pass them, these, their children then would pass them down to, to their children and to their children. And this would go on for, for every generation. This is the pattern of God's people. Which this all leads to, to our second point, which we're going to spend much more time here because it gets at the, the heart of our question this morning. And that point is to look at the purpose of God's people. What is the reason? What's the purpose for God's people handing down these teachings? Verse 5 begins the, the second section of these verses. And Asaph recounts how God has established a testimony in Jacob, or, or you could say Israel, and he's appointed a law in Israel. Testimony and law are words that, that tell us of God's revelation of himself to his old covenant people. God, right, he revealed himself through the giving of the old covenant law, right, the, the, the Ten Commandments. And his testimony is his work, his, his wondrous works in Israel. So he established this testimony. He established the, the law first on, on tablets of stone but then also through the, the writings of Moses and through the, the, the passing down of that, that history. So what we have here in verse 5, I think, is a clear reference to God's revelation to his people in the Old Covenant context. And I think there's a very clear one-to-one -one relation to the whole Scriptures, the Bible, in our context. Right? The Bible is God's full revelation of himself to his people, in the New Covenant era. And notice the command that, that Asaph brings up. The Israelites were commanded to teach God's testimony, to teach God's law to their children. In short, the Israelites were commanded to teach the Bible, the Scriptures, to their kids. And in verse 6, we see that the teaching is in order that the children might might know them. They might know the testimony and the, the law of God. That they might know the word of God. This is very important. We teach children so they can have knowledge of the scriptures. So they can know them. We see this command, I think, clearly in a place like Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. It's where Moses writes to the people. He says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The clear command here is God's people must teach their children God's word. God's people must teach their children God's word. And notice, there has to, to implement this teaching, it's, it's comprehensive. And what I mean by that, it's, it's in all of life, in the home, in, in the synagogue, in the Old Covenant context, in the church, in the new, everywhere, when we walk, when we lie down, when we rise, in other words, in all aspects of life, a comprehensive understanding in all areas we are teaching and training our children in the Word of God. And so notice also that this comprehensive nature, or we could call a, a whole life, every aspect of our life training our children in the Bible, I think that has implications for how we think about the church's role in Bible education. But first, I think it's important to make one thing clear about the Bible's instructions for training children, and that is the primary responsible party that we see in the Scriptures, the primary responsible party of raising up children in the fear and instruction of the Lord is to fathers, is to fathers in the home. Paul says as much in Ephesians 6.4. Paul writes, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul is giving a command there, right? In the context of the church, but he's giving a command to Christian fathers. Fathers have the unique responsibility, and I would say the unique privilege, of leading their, their wife and children spiritually, to, to train them, to disciple them, to teach them the Word of God. And this is the, the father's role in the home, the father's God-given role. But I think if we're, if we're taking a place like Deuteronomy 6 or, or Psalm 78 as a guide in, in just how comprehensive this undertaking is of training our children in the ways of the Lord, I think it should comfort us to know, both as fathers and, and parents, that we don't need to go and undergo this training in isolation. In fact, I would say it's probably impossible to do it by ourselves. And this is where, I would argue, the covenant community comes in. The church can, the church should aid and assist parents in the training and the teaching of our children to, to know God's Word. And the language here in, in verse 6, so we're back, back in Psalm 78, the, notice the language here in verse 6 of arise and tell these teachings to their children. The word arise, it, it, it carries with it the meaning of taking responsibility. It's like a, a call to arms, arise to action, to rise up to the challenge. There's a responsibility here to make sure that we pass on the faith, to make sure that we pass on the teachings that have been passed on to us to pass on the scriptures to our children. And the church carries on that, that, that responsibility 
primarily by coming alongside parents, by, by equipping parents in the knowledge of God's Word through the, the teaching ministries of the church, but also by actually educating the children, by, by teaching and training the children in God's Word through, through biblical instruction. So listen, there, there is no inconsistency in our current practice of, of taking these commands from God's Word to, to train our children, to, to teach them the Bible, to instruct them in the Scriptures, to pass on the faith. There is no contradiction of our ch church doing this while not baptizing them until they show a credible profession of faith. I'd argue the command is still ours to follow because the command is clear in God's Word. So children's Sunday school is going to be valued here. Youth Christian education is going to be a value here because we must take seriously the charge to rise, to rise up, to pass on the faith through the teaching of the Word of God to our kids. That's a command given to us with children and to those who are without children. It's a whole church responsibility. But notice something so key in verse 7, and this is really getting to the, to the question of the purpose. What's the point? What's the primary purpose of teaching our children? We read starting in verse 6, Arise and, and tell them to their children so that, so here's the reason, so that they should set their hope in God. That they should set their hope in God. So brothers and sisters, the, we can't miss this. We aren't primarily training our children in the Word of God so they can just have a mere intellectual head knowledge of the facts of Scripture, although that's extremely important and necessary in our training. No, brothers and sisters, we are teaching them the Word so that they would put their hope in God. So they would trust in God. That word hope, it carries with it the idea of, of faith. Trust in Yahweh as the basis, as the foundation of that hope. So it's not just some generic hope, a hope that, that God exists or something. No, this is a saving hope, we could say. The command is for God's people to teach our children God's word, to train them in it, so that they may put their faith in God. So they would hope in Him. Bank their, their entire life on Him as, as trustworthy, as, as Savior. In short, we train them so that they will be saved. That's the primary purpose of our teaching children God's Word. That's why it's worth it to our volunteers in this congregation to work week after week after week, preparing lessons that explain God's Word. It's worth it because the great promise of this verse, the great hope of this verse, that God will, He will save His people through the faithful teaching of His Word, which includes children, as we pass on the faith to future generations. And that's the reason it's worth it to fathers to, to, and parents to, to spend time throughout the week teaching God's Word over the dinner table. 
It's why it's worth it that we, we open our Bibles in our homes and teach God's Word. Because God can, God will save our children through our teaching. So that they would, that they would hope in God. That's the main primary reason for our training children in the ways of the Lord. So just to illustrate this point a bit, I think this is probably how, I don't have any evidence for this, except my own personal life, but I think this is how largely God saves people. As I listen to people's testimonies, through the faithful teaching of parents and church members. So again, this is purely anecdotal, but in my time in seminary, I got to meet a lot of Christians, and it's very common to just talk about, oh, how were you saved? Tell me your testimony. So uh, probably hundreds, maybe hundreds of Christians that I got to speak with, and probably something close to like 95% of those stories where Christians coming to faith was just through the discipleship of their parents or through a, a Sunday school teacher. Or maybe a, a VBS event, an evangelistic VBS event for, for kids. In God's infinite wisdom and providence, I think we can say this with confidence, that God normally saves Christians through this type of passing down the faith. Through the faithful teaching of the Word of God by parents and by Sunday school teachers, by the church. Maybe that's why God has commanded it in the first place in the scriptures. Maybe that's why he's commanded it of the parents and the covenant community. But there's another reason for the teaching of our kids. We see this in verse 7. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. But keep his commandments. So we teach so that, the, that our children do not forget God's ways, God's work, and to, in short, be obedient to God, to, to keep His Word, to keep His commandments found in His Word. Now, I think it's really important, extremely crucial, that we understand the ordering here that Asaph is getting, giving. It's, it's a logical ordering that we see in the rest of the psalm and the whole of Scriptures, Without a saving knowledge, or without hope in God, there can be no actual obedience to God. So the psalmist begins by, by saying that they, the children, would not forget the works of God. This means not forget in some innocent, naive sense, like they're just kids that they'll just forget. This word means a, a conscience, deliberate disregard for God. Not just the disregard for the actual events in history that God has done, but also what those, those events signify about the nature of God, how God is good and holy and just. It's a blatant disregard of God. So we teach our children the scriptures so they don't do that, so they don't blatantly disregard who God is and what he is doing in history. This idea connects with, with verse 8. Because disregard of God is exactly the testimony of the majority of Israel's people and the majority of Israel's history. 
So reading in verse 8, that they, that is the, the children, should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is, right, this is the common way God's old covenant people are referred to as, as a stubborn and hard-hearted people, a rebellious generation. They were not obedient to God's law. They did not cherish God's word. They disregarded God and his commands, and they sinned blatantly. They did not delight to do his will. But notice where the psalmist puts the emphasis on this disobedience. They, they, were, not, they were a generation whose, whose heart was not steadfast. Right? They had a heart problem. Whose, whose spirit was not faithful, in verse 8. The Old Covenant members who were unfaithful to God and His law, we could just say simply, they had a heart problem. They were not born again. They were not regenerate. They did not believe and have their hope in Yahweh, and thus they, they led lives in disobedience to God. And the psalmist teaching us, we must teach our children to hope in God so that they do not turn out like those unbelieving Israelites. But notice the consistency, the, the obedience in keeping God's commandments in verse 7 and, and the disobedience of the former stubborn and rebellious genera generation. They're, they're both grounded, they both are, are rooted in a heart response to God. Right, notice that in the text. It's, it's rooted in how these individuals respond to God through, the, through their heart. So with no saving faith, with, with no hope in the Lord, there is no faithful obedience. So when we're thinking about training our children in, in righteousness and teaching them the, the word of God, we most definitely teach them God's law. This is not, a, not advocating for just skipping all the commandments and just getting to grace. That's not what we are to do in our training of God's children. We're to teach them the whole counsel of God's word, which includes the commands. Because we, we for several reasons, but one is that we know God's ways are the best ways for them. God's commandments are what actually lead to our flourishing. It will lead to generally our, our children's lives to go well for them. But we can't ever expect obedience to the commands of God without our children trusting and hoping in God for salvation. We can never disconnect the two. We can have a distorted ministry to our children that's actually burdensome. There's a logical ordering to our teaching and training. And if our children are, are brought up knowing the Word of God, knowing God's laws and God's command for his people, then when they hope in God, they have this, this sure and firm foundation of what obedience looks like, of what the Christian life actually looks like, because they've been trained in it over their years in the church and in a Christian home. But we, we really cannot mix up that order of we're in danger again of burdening our children. What we want is, as verse 7 says, that our children would keep God's commandments. That, that the commentator Alan Ross states that this word keep in verse 7 can also mean 
treasure up for future use. Treasure up for future use. So the idea here is that children would store up in their hearts God's commandments. Would store up in their mind God's word so that they can keep it in the future. When they're, when they're saved, when they come to a saving knowledge and hope in God. So when any of us, including children, hope in God, when we savingly trust our king for salvation, when that happens, God's laws, God's commands, our, our obedience becomes something we desire. We start to desire to keep the commandments. We start to, 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 to desire to uphold God's law. It's no longer a list of do's and don'ts that, that are just merely arbitrary for, for whatever reason that we, that we dislike to keep. Right? That, that's the posture of a non-believer. No, when, when our hope is in God, then God's ways become what we desire. God's ways become more and more our ways. We begin to value what God values, which means keeping and obeying His Word. This, again, I think has, has many implications for our understanding of, of teaching and training our children. One way I thought about this this week is that when we teach the, the whole counsel of God's Word to our children, especially thinking about children that are not presently trusting in God for salvation, or if it's just hard to know if they are, we can view the teaching of God's commands and, and moral uprightness as preparatory. Meaning we, we shouldn't expect or teach the commands in Scripture to our children with the ex expectation of full obedience. In fact, part of our training our children is teaching them how to obey, what it looks like for a life to obey God's commands. But it's preparatory in the sense that if and when God saves a child, they'll have the solid foundation of God's Word, of what God expects of them as a Christian of what God commands of their life and demands of their life as a Christian. And friends, there is so much value in that. There is so much value in having that foundation with living, knowing the Christian worldview and knowing of what God expects of you in the Christian life. You know, I, I didn't have that foundation growing up. And I would say there's, there's, there is some real disadvantages to not growing up in the church or in a Christian family. When I was saved at the age of 18, I remember meeting a pastor for the first time, and he met, and he gave me a children's Bible, and I was extremely insulted. I was like, I, you know, I could do the King James. I've read Shakespeare. But you know what I did? I went home, and I read the children's Bible. Because I had no clue. I had no foundation of what was expected of me. I had no foundation for the truth. So I had to start at square one. This is not always the case for believers who are growing up being trained in the Word of God from the age that they can first remember. There's a completely different story for Christians in that boat. And it is glorious. So we must teach our children the whole counsel of God's word for the purpose of, of their, their trusting in God for salvation and for them to store up, to keep God's commandments in their heart 
And I'll tell you, that, that's children's ministry in a nutshell. Children's ministry 101 is, is that. And so in closing, I just want to return to our opening question, our opening problem. Thinking through these, these very important issues of, of baptism and membership in the church. I think we need to be clear in our thinking that, that all of us, parents, grandparents, singles, we have a, a duty, an obligation to rise up, as the psalm says. To rise to the task to train the next generation in the ways of the Lord. Whether a child is baptized or not, ready for baptism, regardless of that status, there's a privilege, there's a responsibility given to parents, and by extension, given to the covenant community, given to the local church, to help train these children in the scriptures. And so it's my hope and it's my prayer that that EF would be a church that continue its long legacy of doing just this, of training up future generations in the Bible so that they may hope in God. And you know, I'm looking out, I'm seeing many faces of stories I've heard of older saints in this room many years ago, maybe not that long ago, training children who are now parents in this room. And these dear saints are now training the children of the children they trained. And the children they trained are now training other children. Brothers and sisters, this is precious. And it's the type of multi-generational, faithful, decades-long, faithful teaching that pleases our Lord. And what we see pictured in Psalm 78. May this faithful teaching last for future generations so that they may hope in God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do pray that we would be faithful to the task that you've given your people, which is to uphold and teach your word, to teach it as beautiful, as true, as something to be desired to the future generations in our midst. And we do ask for much fruit, Lord, that you would, through the faithful teaching of your word in our many ministries that, that seek to train our children, that you would that you would save them, that you would save them at a young age, that they would turn and trust in you, and that you would prepare them through the teaching that they're getting, through the training that they're getting, you would prepare them of a life that is pleasing to you, of what that life looks like, that they would learn to love and value your word over all the world's lies they would love and desire to be obedient to you over any earthly power. Lord, we know that you can do this. You've done it in the past. You promised to do it in the future, and we trust you to do it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.